Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. A study out this week showed that 35% of Black respondents say they would either probably or definitely not get a COVID-19 vaccine if they had the option. That might strike you as strange because of the devastating impact the virus has had on Black Americans. So what's behind those numbers? Well, it's complex. There's a deep history of medical malpractice at the expense of Black people and Black bodies. And there are disparities happening today in health outcomes for Black people. So let's unpack what's behind this apparent distrust of the vaccine with Donna Thompson, CEO of Access Community Health Network, headquartered in Chicago. Donna, hello. Hi, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us. Also here is Dan Royals, assistant professor of history at Florida International University and author of To Make the Wounded Whole, the African-American Struggle Against HIV and AIDS. He wrote a new piece in The Washington Post this week called Years of Medical Abuse Make Black Americans Less Likely to Trust the Coronavirus Vaccine. Hi, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. Donna, what do you make of this figure? 35%. Now, that's almost one third of black respondents who aren't so sure about this vaccine. Are you surprised? Well, no. And in fact, it might be a little higher than even what the data is uh, is showing. You know, many times we've seen in the Black community where it's not just about the science, but it's the long legacy of issues where our communities have been neglected. You know, lack of infrastructure, all the issues, and, and we know the support that's needed to have healthy communities Um, There's been lack of investment in the African-American communities. And many times, even when we think about health care, it's been very fragmented. It's been very episodic. Um, And many times when people do enter care, it's through the emergency department or not with a trusted caregiver. You work in Chicago at the community level, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So what have you seen or heard about this hesitance around the vaccine from, from black residents? Well, you know, for many people of color, they're also the essential workers. And so what many have as top of mind, um, you know, social distancing. Um, I had one person tell me the other day, you know, Donna, even the notion of social distancing is a privilege, meaning that, you know, for many people, if they live in multi-generational households, if they have jobs that they're afraid to lose Um, You know, they might lose a day's pay if they don't show up. Even understanding that for many who might be asymptomatic carriers, they're in households where maybe there's one bathroom and five or six individuals are sharing. And so also understanding what's top of mind. You know, during the summertime, for many in, in our communities, the top of mind was addressing the issues around violence and the issues around keeping your job and making sure you did not get evicted. And so as someone working in the community, I always start with where people are at and mm-hmm. what they're thinking is. And then again, try and navigate them to a place where with a lot of support and also the right information that we can get there uh, in a good place. Well, tell me how you feel about it as a black woman. Do you personally understand it? Have you had family that's been saying that they're not trusting of this vaccine? I know I'm, I'm getting text messages left and right from mine. Absolutely. Well, I've been a nurse for 42 years. And so even Mr. Royal, who has 
wrote about the AIDS epidemic. I was a young nurse in my mid twenties at the height of, you know, of the AIDS epidemic. And again, I remember uh, having a lot of fear and trust. And in fact, I had two uncles who died within a year of each other from um, the impact of AIDS. And so even with family members, and I always tell people it could be at the grocery store, it could be at your hair salon or the nail tech. It's about listening and validating for people that they're skeptical about it, that they are afraid, but then also getting people to talk and also share their stories. Unfortunately, in the Black community, we've been hit hard with the highest rates of death. And many times when families also disclose that, it's not only the hurt and the suddenness of having someone that got sick and pass sometimes within weeks. It's also using that as a way to inspire others to say that because of this vaccine, other family members and friends could have a different outcome. Professor, I want to bring you into the conversation because we've been hearing a lot of references, especially of late, to the Tuskegee syphilis experiments in discussion around mistrust. Tell us what happened there. I don't think everyone knows what the Tuskegee experiments actually were. So the Tuskegee syphilis trial was a 40-year study conducted at um, Tuskegee University in Alabama that was conducted by scientists and doctors from the U.S. Public Health Service. And what they wanted to do was to track the progression of untreated syphilis in the human body. And so they tracked the progression of untreated syphilis in a cohort of poor black men from the rural communities around Tuskegee. And, you know, the study continued from 1932 to 1972, during which time good treatments for syphilis became available. You know, but to preserve the quote-unquote integrity of the study, the men in the study were not given the antibiotics that we would use now to treat syphilis. And so, you know, this is done without their consent. The men understood that they had what they called bad blood. So, you know, there's all kinds of ethical problems with the way that the study was carried out. But the study was carried out in the open. It was reported on in medical journals. It was approved by medical societies. And so, you know, that came to kind of came to light in 1972. Um, But it was all done under the aegis of medical science. Right. And, you know, what Tuskegee so all these shows is that those black men, not to mention, you know, their wives, their girlfriends, their children, you know, who are also put at risk from their syphilis not being treated, you know, that those people were, you know, viewed as expendable, you know, in in the the project of creating medical or scientific knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that is for a lot of people a really significant touchstone for, you know, this history of medical abuse. But one of the things that I wanted to make really clear in the Washington Post piece was that there's a much longer history here. Not only is there a much longer history of medical abuse that goes back to before the Civil War and slavery, but that the knowledge of that abuse has been in Black communities for a long time. And I yeah. think that, um, and for because we're on the radio, I know, you know, we can't see each other. Um, right. I'm a white scholar who writes African-American history. And so... I imagine for people reading the piece that, you know, some of this history will be new, but also just the idea 
that this distrust runs so deep and has such a long history, I think is probably new for people as well. And I want, you know, particularly non-black folks to understand that this distrust is reasonable and justified. It will have negative health effects for black communities. But, you know, if you look at this long history, you know, it's very understandable that black folks are suspicious of a vaccine. Professor, another shocking ethically immoral act that also left its mark is the treatment of uh, Henrietta Lacks, right? Her cells, known as HeLa cells, are famous in the world of science. They change our understanding around cancer, but her cells were actually obtained in this dark, questionable way. So can you just briefly lay out what happened uh, to Henrietta Lacks and her family? Yeah, Henrietta Lacks was a tobacco farmer from Maryland, and in 1951, she knew that something was wrong in her body. Um, And she went to Johns Hopkins University Medical Center to be treated, and they found a tumor on her cervix and took a sample from that tumor. And she passed away from the cancer that same year. But from that sample uh, that her family didn't know had been taken, Mm -hmm. they cultured the cells and the cells are unique in their ability to multiply indefinitely. So they're, they've been really invaluable, as you said, for medical research. And, I mean, the amount of wealth, if you think about, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and medical research that has been generated from these cells that were taken from Henri- Henrietta Lack's body is enormous, like probably incalculable. Her family didn't know that these cells had been you know, taken from her body and were being used in this way until decades after her death and didn't see any kind of compensation or restitution until just last year. You know, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of layers to this story, but I think, you know, part of what makes Henrietta Lack's story so valuable is is not that it's an especially unique story, because if we think about, you know, the men of Tuskegee, or if we think about, you know, just kind of pulling back the story of slavery, we're talking about the extraction of wealth from black bodies. Right. Um, you know, and that is, a, that is a centuries-old story in this country, and I think ultimately that's what all this dials back to, is the, the white supremacy that was enshrined in slavery, uh, that, you know, upheld the institution of slavery, um, you know, and that has this very long afterlife, um, you know, after emancipation. Well, Donna, in both cases... Right. People thought that they or or their family members were being treated for illness. Obviously, they were not. So from what you see day to day in your work, what sort of lasting impact have these types of transgressions had on black trust in medicine? Well, I think um, it's a myriad of, of issues. For some, it's not being able to have a trusted provider We know that even in um, the African-American community, we do not have enough representation of African-American physicians and people in healthcare, And that has weighed a lot on having a trusted individual that serves your community that you can go and you know that they almost have the same stakeholder investment that you do. I think the other piece is that many times in healthcare. People are talked at instead of talked with. 
it's really power over over power with. And many times from the medical jargon to even an approach of if you don't do it this way, dot, dot, dot. You know, more and more as we think about healthcare, we need to think of a partnership, a journey that's focused on prevention, that's focused on issues that has broadened health disparities, um, including what Dr. Royals talked about, the wealth gap and lack of investment in our communities that has caused a lot of the major issues, one being healthcare disparities. Yeah. Well, we actually heard from a black doctor about just that, Donna. Uh, his name is Edwin McDonald IV. He specializes in adult nutrition at U Chicago Medicine. Here's a little bit of his thoughts on how the medical community can build trust. One obvious way is diversifying the medical workforce. Case in point, in Chicago, there are only two black male primary care doctors at academic institutions. So for many African-American residents uh, who would like to have a primary care doctor that looks like themselves or would be more trusting of a primary care doctor that looks like themselves, that is not an option at most of our academic institutions. Let's talk about where we're at today. Uh, You know, there are concerns around whether scientists had the specific needs of Black and Latinx people in mind, fears around side effects. You know, is there something to be said about the fact that there can be a lack of transparency around who was used in the trials for vaccines, Professor? Yeah, certainly. You know, this is a concern that goes back decades um, and was one of the kind of key demands of AIDS activists you know, going back into the, the 80s and 90s was to make sure that clinical trials for, in that case, HIV treatments were not just white men. In the, the soup of, of history, up until very recently, it was normal to, you know, assume that, uh, you know, what was good for white men uh, was good for everybody or worked for everybody. And, you know, that's a, not necessarily the case, um, yeah. and, and B, it's important for, as you said, in order for communities to have trust in the medical system, you know, they need to be included. And, and I really think that what um, Donna said was valuable is that, you know, it's not just a matter of people being included, but it's a matter of people feeling heard and validated and worked with as, as people who have power over their own lives and, you know, their own medical outcomes rather than people who are treated as just patients or subjects or objects of medicine. You know, it's important for people to have a sense of of agency and validation. So, Donna, how do we rebuild this trust? Because we just talked about the Black and Latinx communities, right? But we're also seeing Black and Latinx health professionals going first. They're getting the vaccine. They're saying, hey, look, I'm doing it. I'm part of this. I wouldn't do anything to hurt my own community. Is that one way that might help to lead by example? That's one way. And again, those are good optics and visuals. But at the end of the day, it really is neighborhood by neighborhood, community by community. You know, when we started doing COVID testing in the spring, We just didn't say, hey, we're going to do COVID testing and open up our doors. We really sat with the community, the stakeholders, our faith leaders, other invested community um, organizations and said, this is what we want to do. How is the best way to go about it? What are we missing? And I think even as we're getting ready for the vaccine, 
I'm starting first with my own employees. Many of them are do not want to get the vaccination. And so listening, validating their concerns, getting them to understand that they can own their fears. They're not going to get fired. But at the same time, looking at more and more ways we can open the dialogue and communication. It really is a journey together because my employees reflect the communities we serve. And as you even stated, we all have family and we've got a wide range of people feeling the way they do. Some hands down supports the science. Others are going to sit on the fence and see what happens. And then there's other groups that are just scared. I do know that the more we share stories, the more we um, involve others. You know, I've been very candid that my sister almost died from COVID. She was on the ventilator for eight and a half days. And my my biggest fear was, will I forget what her voice sounded like? And even though I'm a nurse, even though I understand all of this, I felt the same way so many Americans have when you're just in this deep abyss and you're depending on others to tell you what's going on because you can't be at their bedside. Well, well thank you so much for, for sharing that. Professor, I just want to know what, you're, what you want people to take away from this topic. I want people to take away that we should not pathologize what is essentially people's survival strategies. You know, these stories are are part of a community survival strategy that developed over generations. And we should approach that with an attitude of understanding and not condemnation or pathologization. That's Dan Royals, Assistant Professor of History at Florida International University. Also with us, Donna Thompson, CEO of the Chicago-based Access Community Health Network. Thank you both. And that's today's Reset. Join us here tomorrow for our weekly news roundup. We'll take you inside the biggest local and state stories from the last seven days. And if you like what you hear on Reset, give this podcast a quick rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.